Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker uh, 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina and Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario. Uh, This week's program, uh, I think we're going to title it European Week because uh, we're talking all things Europe this week. We have two great guests uh, lined up and I have the pleasure of introducing our first guest but before that I have to uh, do I, I do have to say a, a very special congratulations to my co-host who is not on the mic with me right now because he has welcomed his second child into the world uh, so very exciting for him and his wife and uh, we'll have Yael back uh, with us on the program shortly but uh, with that I, I do want to introduce our, our first guest he is a colleague of mine he is from the small country of Luxembourg, uh, very interesting place that I got the chance to visit uh, actually alongside Bill. And so we're going to talk uh, a little bit of EU politics, but also some of the things that are going on in Luxembourg. So Bill Wirtz, well, welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks, David, for having me again. So you, Yael, and I, um, for those for listeners who maybe haven't heard this story before, uh, we went to Luxembourg and we talked to government officials and third parties and everyone uh, about cannabis legalization because the country um, was looking to be the first country in Europe to legalize adult use recreational cannabis. Now, uh, it appears we've hit some sort of a snag. And so could you walk our listeners through what exactly happened? Uh, so in 2018, when the current government coalition got into power, they promised the legalization of cannabis. And he said it's going to take them some time. So uh, we all expected that within a year we're going to have results. And that's also why we went to Luxembourg and talked about you know, the, 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 the specific models of legalization that they should be looking at in specific uh, regulatory frameworks. But it, it seems that we were a bit too optimistic because then, of course, we had COVID. And then you know, the health ministries, which are in charge of these topics, uh, got a bit behind, understandably. But now, recently, what happened is that the government seems to be dropping the issue completely. And their, their argument here is that international treaties do not allow them to legalize cannabis in Luxembourg. It's important to understand for the listeners that there are countries in Europe that, that treat cannabis differently. That means that the, the use is decriminalized. So that's why you can go to Amsterdam and find it in a coffee shop. But that's not tolerated. It's not a legal industry. You can't actually legally purchase uh, uh, cannabis per se. It's just kind of how the Dutch have, can, have, have, have treated it since the 70s. And now uh, the Luxembourgish government is backtracking because it doesn't want to be the only country in the European Union that completely disregards uh, international treaties, including uh, the UN treaties, but also directives from the European Union. Interesting, interesting. Um, so have you? what's your take on why Canada, did Canada just ignore some of these treaties, I, I specifically the UN one, I would assume that they maybe knew that that existed and just said, we're going to go our own way anyway. Um, like, What would be the repercussions if a country like Luxembourg were to just say, hey, we don't really care about this treaty from the 70s, we're getting on with the times, would there be consequences? Well, so the great irony is that Luxembourg actually has done this before. Um, we opened a, a um, needle exchange program uh, uh, place a couple of years ago in Luxembourg because, you know, in order to fight the heroin addiction problem and the, mm-hmm. the diseases related to, to heroin addiction, a needle exchange program, but also a methadone program that helps heroin addicts get, get, get out of their addiction. 
when Luxembourg did that, a UN envoy came to the country and said, hey, there are conventions that don't allow you to give up methadone. That's a, that's a, that's a controlled narcotic. It's Schedule 1, just as much as cannabis is. You're not allowed to do that. And the health minister at the time said, we'd much rather upset you than have more sick people on the street. Yeah. And nothing happened because the United Nations is not an organization that moves in with an army if you do that. And the same happened in Canada. And Canada said, we legalized. So what if the UN is upset? I'm sorry, but like the United Nations is full of resolutions about respecting human rights and still has so many members that completely disregard all of that. If it well, really, if, 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 if cannabis was the issue, I don't think they would, that would be very hypocritical. Well, I, I think I saw on like the committee on the status of women, I think Afghanistan now under the Taliban is still going to hold a seat on that committee. And that, I mean, that, that goes to show you that that institution in some instances can be quite a farce. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, like these, these things have to be redone. I mean, a couple of months ago, uh, we did have a rescheduling of, uh, of cannabis out of schedule four of the single convention on, on, on narcotics, uh, from, which is, by the, by the way, dates back to 1961. And schedule four basically means here's all the prohibited substances that have also no medical use whatsoever. So cannabis got out of that. So there's some recognition that there could be medical use. And what I think that countries can do if they do want to be somewhat compliant with these conventions, they could say the prohibition on cannabis has created such a medical issue for our jurisdictions that there is a reasoning within the convention to say, hey, there is a you might have to adapt the regulatory framework to say like, well, for medicinal reasons, these are temporary rules and so on. But ultimately, I think there is a justification here where you can say our country is in such a crisis because of the, the, the illicit market that we've created because of the prohibition on cannabis that we should not be uh, adhering to these resolutions. And, and I mean, you're in the media space domestically in, in Luxembourg. What was the response from journalists or, or like what was the what what does public opinion say in regards to the government's backtracking are people upset about it are they just kind of waiting to see well those in the opposition that were against it are of course happy um even though their arguments back in the days was not that oh we're not respecting the convention nobody seemed to have really talked about this at the time all of these rules all of these international treaties existed prior to the announcement but it, it seems that they've just realized this uh, recently also because they realized that legalizing cannabis does take more than just the announcement there's a lot you need to consider there and i think that's what we wanted to explain to them uh, at the time i think yeah. most people are very disappointed uh, most people are very disappointed i mean it's not news that politicians backtrack on their promises but they really, they were really grandstanding on this announcement. They wanted the international media attention. Like, we're going to be the first country to legalize it. We've understood how prohibition fails. And now they backtrack with as little noise as possible. And I think that's really upsetting to a lot of the commentators. And I completely understand. Yeah, it's, it's almost like they got their good press and then they went home. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, well, that's politics for you. Yeah. Um, another issue that I've seen come up, um, which is interesting because... When I, when, when I talk about nimbyism or the lack of housing and the housing crisis, it's almost always very North American focused. But of course, these are issues that are experienced in Europe. Um, Luxembourg, uh, I would assume, has its own housing shortage or housing crisis or affordability crisis. Walk our listeners through what that looks like and then some of the maybe silly ideas uh, that have been proposed to combat that. 
Oh well, there's a lot to say here. And so, so um, <laughs> on immigration level, so we have a we have a we have an increase in, in in population every year, but we don't build enough houses for those people. So there again, you see the you see the market disparity, and you would you would think that the that the conclusion should be we'll build more houses, but unfortunately that's not possible because first of all the government doesn't allow you to build on much of the of the uh, of the country. Only one third of the country of Luxembourg, which is two and a half thousand square kilometers. I don't know exactly what that's in, 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 in square miles, but people who are interested can do the math. It's not very big. It's, it's I think it's, it's about the size of Delaware. Um, but I think, but I think what's, um, um, what, what, what's interesting there as well is that how long the government has made the procedures to build something. If you build a housing complex with more units, it takes you between 10 and 15 years to get all the approval to get it actually uh, build there. And, and, and I think that that's, that's, that's a big part of the problem. And the silly idea is the state of the nation of the Prime Minister, Xavier Bittel, was recently, and he announced a tax on empty homes. Okay. So uh, if you if you leave your home empty, you're not renting it out, you're not putting it on the market, you must be speculating. It's impossible that you maybe might be waiting for your child to, to go to university in two years, and then they can use it. No, no, no. You are speculating on the market, and you will be taxed. So that's one of the silly rules where politicians think with the tax, they will solve all the problems. Well, I mean, I had this conversation once about Vancouver because they wanted to do something similar in terms of an empty homes tax. And they're like, oh, well, people are buying houses as investments and speculating. It's like, you want to really stick it to speculators? Build more houses, increase the supply, put some downward press pressure on prices, and then actually give people a place to live. I mean, if you want to stick it to speculators, the answer is easy. I mean, the difference is one option creates an incredible amount of wealth and jobs and opportunity building, and the other one is just a bureaucratic instrument to try and generate revenue. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a bit of a headache. <laughs> and so, it, Yeah, it's also like if you look at a country like Japan, Japan also like with more supply was actually able to to, to stabilize the market on, on, on prices. And, and Japan is, a, is, a, is, an, is, an, is an island nation with very limited possibilities of what yes. to do. But they would actually, you know, you can, you can uh, um, uh, vertically increase your, your supply as well, build bigger. And that's also something that in Luxembourg we don't want to do because the voting population is the owning, the, the house owner uh, population. Those are the Luxembourgers who actually own places. They have no incentive whatsoever to vote for political parties that would do anything about this problem. So this we're on, in this loop, this voting loop, of course. And of course, the entire, as you said, it's the nimbyism. It's like, oh, our nice little countryside. Imagine somebody would build something with four to five floors. That would be horrendous. So, so that's, that's really, really a big part of the problem there. Yeah, the the only the only real solution I've seen to seen for this, um, which is a North American example, would be in Vancouver. So there's an area of land which is owned by one of the indigenous tribes, and so they put together this proposal for like this three thousand unit mega complex. It's like its own little city, and city council was like, "Well, no, you can't do that. Like, there's not enough green space. There's not enough parking. It's too dense." And the indigenous community just looked at city council and was like, ha ha, this is our land. We don't have to follow your rules. And so they're actually going to move forward with this like 3,000 uh, unit unit um, complex, which is, I mean, it, when I look at the like the drop and map of it, I'm like, wow, that, that actually looks like a pretty cool place to live. Um, unfortunately, I doubt that anything like that <laughs> exists in Luxembourg. Um, but it's it, we're getting to the point where you kind of need 
like crazy solutions to force the hand of government to want to develop because at every turn it just seems like there are really loud uh very annoying voices who oppose even medium density development yeah i mean and also for the north american listeners to this to this program just to to exemplify sort of what that can look like in europe there is daily commuters between Paris and London every day who use the Eurostar because it's cheaper to live in, in the suburbs of Paris than it is to live in London. So yeah. these are people who cross countries, they, they're not, I mean, under the channel every single day because that is cheaper and more convenient to do than living in the country where, where you, and, and I mean, it's not like France is the best on the whole, NIMBYism, yeah. NIMBYism, good conversation. So, so these kind of situations where people need to cross borders every day just because they can't afford to live in the place that gives them employment opportunities, it's, 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 it's really unfortunate. Yeah, and it's crazy when I talk to people about Japan, which you brought up. It's like, I, th I think the figures are like Tokyo takes whatever their growth forecast is, and then their permit office allows for like 10% more of that a year just to play it safe. Um, I know in Ontario, where this show broadcasts as well, we need like a million homes in the next 10 years. And I think like the official forecast is maybe 300,000 homes or so. I don't know the specific numbers, but it's like drastically lower than what we need. And everyone is looking at this, especially everyone who's like our age, right? So we have careers, we're moderately successful. In a previous era, we would be in the demographic who would be maybe looking to buy our first home. But for so many of us who are in this bracket, it's like, well, this isn't even possible. I mean, the, the average detached home where I live, I think goes for like 1.25 million. Uh, so it's like, well, unless you're getting a lot of money from your parents or you win the lottery or you make a quarter of a million dollars a year, it's very difficult to, to actually buy property. And so you're kind of left on the outskirts. Um, which is which is super unfortunate, you, you would think you would think that the people who are so obsessed with privilege, and, um, you know, the, the entire privileged class situation would be the ones who would be the Yimbis who would say, well, I mean, because, you know, in, in Luxembourg, it's the same, you know, eventually, you have an inheritance, you sell that house, and then you have the resources to do whatever you want, because those houses sell for so much. But if you're not in the class of people who are in a, in a family ship, which are which are owners, then 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 you, you don't get into the market. And in order to create this market opportunities, we need more supply. And, and it, it it's crazy to me how even like there's socialist nations out there in the world today that build a lot because even they understand that yes. they would create a housing shortage if they wouldn't i mean they build terrible buildings and so on but at least there's space to live right exactly. um but exactly. it's, it's, well, well bill it's it's been a pleasure thank you again for joining us and i'm sure we'll have you back on back on soon absolutely thank you so much Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM. We're broadcasting up and down North America and figured we'd have a shot over at Europe. And I'm very excited to have our next guest on. We're speaking with Carlo Stagnaro. He's the director of the Observatory on the Digital Economy at the Instituto Bruno Leoni. And prior to that, he was the chief of the minister's technical staff at Italy's Ministry of Economic Development. Carlo, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you very much, and hello to all. All right, so we got you on American Talk Radio. Uh, you know everything about what's happening in Italy. 
many of us don't know what's happening in Italy. Give us an update. We know we we heard all about the uh, all the cup the cuts and the measures and the changing of the government. You know how are things looking now? What's the what's the kind of update for some of our listeners? Well, of course, Italy, uh, as well as any other uh, European country and perhaps any other country in the world, uh, is struggling to recover from the COVID crisis. Um, and, and the European Union uh, created a, really, a very large relief package uh, to get out of the crisis. And Italy is one of the uh, largest and perhaps the single largest beneficiary of it. So uh, in a way, uh, even though I am sort of ideologically against public spending, uh, when you are on the beneficiary side, you take it <laughs> and you say, thank you. Uh, but, but of course, the, 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 the big issue is how uh, this money will be spent. Uh, uh, politically speaking, we have a, a sort of grand coalition government uh, led by uh, former ECB, uh, the, the European Central Bank President Mario Draghi. Um, I think in many instances they are doing a, a good job, and particularly they've got they've done a very good job in in accelerating the vaccination campaign. Uh, the rest we will see. Oh yeah, there's definitely a lot that's happening. Man, I didn't know Draghi was already back. I'd forgotten about that. He was, he was out, and they brought him back in, and then you guys kicked him out, and now he's back again. So I got getting getting stuff in order. Uh, one question that I think is important to our listeners: we obviously talk about consumer choice, uh, the way that prices affect certain things. Uh, you, as someone who has studied many of these topics uh, as an economist, you know, sort of how does competition and regulation? work in the European Union. And I know I, I asked you before about uh, broadband and the internet space, and I know you've researched, you know, many of the other topics sort of in the technology world, but what does that kind of look like throughout the European Union? Is it a, a robust market? Are there many companies? Are there monopolies? What is the kind of general overview of some of these companies in Europe? I, I, I think, of course, it, the, the, my, my favorite answer is always, it, it depends. Uh, meaning it depends in which industries uh, you are interested in, where and what you are looking at. But generally speaking, I think that competition is relatively lively in most European member states um, because, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the European Union is a sort of federation of, of sovereign states. Uh, and in order to promote the uh, uh, political and economic integration of, of these different uh, economies and different markets and different uh, uh, countries, uh, for the past 20 years or more, a number of, of reforms have been enacted, both at the European and at the national level, uh, in order to remove barriers to competition. So in many sectors, of course, not all of them, uh, but we have achieved a, a significant degree of competition. Surely in the good market, uh, uh, in the manufactured products market, uh, and, and possibly even in several service sectors, such as telecommunication, energy, and so on and so forth. Of course, there are also other problems, other obstacles, and other uh, barriers to competition. For example, in the digital markets, we, 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 it, it is not a chance that we don't have in Europe almost uh, any, any digital champions, uh, so to speak. Yeah, and they're always trying to create those digital champions, right? They say that we need a, a European Google, a European Facebook, and all the rest. Yeah. And 
which is not the way you get it. I mean, I mean, nobody in America wanted to have an American Google or an American Apple before uh, you, they had um, uh, Google and Apple. And so my, 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 my feeling is that we are on the wrong way from that point of view. And looking at uh, sort of internet regulation, how that works, and obviously uh, we're talking now after uh, many hours of a, a Facebook outage uh, that went across many apps and across many countries and affected a lot of people's communication. Uh, in the United States right now, we have a Democratic administration. We have a renewed FCC. One thing that they're looking at doing is trying to reinstall this net neutrality proposal uh, that would see uh, the Internet uh, actually be regulated under the FCC, under this Title II, sort of as a public utility. Is is that something that, uh, because I, I know you've studied this with uh, other markets, you know, we look at electricity and others that are actual utilities. You know, are there arguments in Europe for for kind of this public utility uh, sort of view of the internet? Is that something that exists or is there a debate around that? Well, yes, we, we, we do have uh, net neutrality regulation since, uh, uh, well, the, the first guidelines were introduced in 2015. So it's been quite a few years now. Um, uh, if you look at the situation in Europe and the United States, uh, where you had net neutrality regulation for some time that they, they were removed, uh, what you actually see is that net neutrality, neutrality did, did not actually deliver the, the uh, expected benefits. Uh, it, it perhaps did not even produce the, 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 the costs that um, uh, some of us were, were uh, fearing in terms of reduced innovation. But uh, my, my, my general approach to regulation is that the, the burden of the proof is on the proponent of the regulation. So a regulation can be accepted as long as you can show that it, it has greater benefits than costs. If you can show no benefits from the regulation, and I, I, I don't really see any measurable, discernible, benefit from from this kind of regulation then there is no case for for that particular regulation and and let me add one 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 single thing uh, the the stronger argument for the net neutrality is that it is supposed to to uh, allow for more investments to be to be made in uh, strengthening and developing the the uh, infrastructure but still, uh, uh, infrastructural investments in broadband networks have been lagging in Europe as well as in the United States. And in fact, in many EU member states, including my own Italy, uh, we are pumping billions of taxpayers' money to, to, to develop these infrastructures. So my point is that if you if the best way to, I mean, I, I don't have a, uh, honestly a position on whether or not you should uh, achieve a, a total coverage of broadband networks in the uh, national territory. But if you think you should, the easiest way is just to pay for it rather than going a, a very uh, uh, complex way uh, through net neutrality and other regulations. Oh, yeah. And the, the Biden administration is uh, slapping on billions of dollars to do just that. So <laughs> We'll see how that happens. Yes, the, the, the point is that either you, you, you put taxpayers' money or you regulate and putting taxpayers' money at least as long as you want to, to, to build pieces of infrastructure is better. But you, th there is absolutely no reason to have both public spending and regulation. That's a very good point. Uh, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Carlo Stagnato of the 
Bruno Leone Institute in Milan, Italy. Milano, one of the best cities in the world. And I say that, uh, you know, as Vienna is a little bit of competition. Uh, so, Carlo, I know you're an expert on energy policy. We talked a little bit about liberalization. I know you've studied that, that there are various examples in European countries where there have been uh, projects of liberalization, whether it be with electricity. I know that uh, Italy, I, I believe high-speed rail is something that's also been privatized. Yeah. What, what are some of these other sort of uh, examples uh, that kind of show that you can actually do this and it can actually deliver value uh, for consumers and users of these services? Yeah, thanks for the question. This is one uh, issue where I think uh, uh, Americans can can learn some lessons from the uh, European uh, experience. Uh, electricity and high-speed rail are two unbelievable cases where competition, if it is allowed, can actually deliver value. Uh, let me make just two examples. Uh, first one is electricity. I mean, in the current days uh, in, in, in Europe, we are uh, going through a, a real energy crunch with prices skyrocketing for for a very uh, uh, for a big spike in, in energy demand and low supply uh, and and uh, those who uh, in in those markets uh, where uh, consumers can choose their electricity supplier many of them including myself uh, have chosen uh, uh, tariffs uh, which are uh, uh, fixed tariffs uh, in the sense that you 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 choose how to pay in advance, and and uh, if if the wholesale cost of electricity is lower, you pay a little bit more. But when the cost of electricity uh, uh, spikes up, then you are so to speak protected against the variation. So this is a very small example of how liberalization can allow for for different people to to express their preferences uh, with re with reference for to, to to risk, for example. And the other big example. Uh, which is a, a very Italian one, uh, is high-speed rail. Uh, as long as I know, uh, uh, Italy was the first country to introduce competition in high-speed rail. Uh, several years ago, we, uh, we allowed uh, a competing company to enter the market. And since then, prices have been going down dramatically and the quality of the service has improved. I mean, any American or, or non-American who has been in Italy, like, let's say 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, can remember the very bad quality of trains and railway service. Now I challenge you to come in Italy, come to Italy and try to, to, to move uh, around the country through high-speed rail. You will discover a totally different world and that's entirely thanks to competition. Wow, that's, a, that's actually a very good lesson. I know a lot of people are, you know, wish for the days they could have high-speed rail, but I know that uh, Italy being more compact. If I could go back to the kind of electricity question there, that, that's kind of an interesting point because, you know, Europe has obviously a mixture of different energy supplies. You know, you look at the United States, it's also very similar. I wonder how much national barriers kind of play into this. And, and you know, are you able to source electricity outside of Italy? Is it mostly imported? Is it all domestic production? What does that kind of play into the liberalization of the market overall? Is it something that's done by a lot of outside, still European, but not Italian firms? Or what does that kind of look like? Well, I, I would say that in most European countries, including Italy, electricity markets are pretty much open today. Uh, so you have a, a plurality of, of subjects of operators, either domestic or foreign. And, and you also have 
a number of, of, of agreements between member states that allow uh, you to, to ship electricity from one country uh, to, to, to the other. So increasingly, uh, the electricity market is becoming a, a sort of European one rather than a national one. If you, you know, electricity uh, markets, uh, electricity is a kind of good where you have a wholesale market and, and a retail market. While retail markets are still mostly national, uh, the wholesale market is by and large a European one. I mean, we have harmonized the, the uh, rules uh, of power markets and, 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 and now energy is produced where uh, uh, you are able to, to, to generate it uh, at the least cost and where it is cleanest. Of course, we have also a, a number of regulation to promote renewable energy and, and other emissions-free energy. Uh, some of these uh, I, I don't like because they, they interfere with competition or prevent competition, but the idea that you should be uh, somehow awarded for, for the, the green energy you produce or, or better the emissions-free energy you produce, including renewable and nuclear power and so on and so forth, that's a good idea. And, and, and if consumers actually want and demand and are willing to pay a premium on green electricity, that's a, a, a big instrument to, to promote decarbonization and to uh, achieve a, 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 a lower environmental footprint. I like that you mentioned nuclear. Obviously, that's one that's brought up a lot in uh, European context of, of some countries where it is totally banned, like Austria and other countries like France. That, but like Italy. So, like so Italy, it, Italy we, it we is banned. banned. Is that right? Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. Italy, we banned nuclear power uh, in 1987 after the, the Chernobyl uh, accident. And, 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 but, but we import a lot of nuclear power, especially by night, from France and, and Switzerland and other countries. Okay, so we, we'll do the nuclear, but just don't have it in our borders, you know, not in my backyard. Yes, exactly. Right? Well, that's also applied to, to natural gas and oil. We consume a lot of oil and gas. And, but we uh, are a very uh, small producer, partly because we, we, we are not uh, a resource-rich country, but also because uh, for, for a few years now, we have not been releasing any new concession to, for, for exploration and production. So we, 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 we just want oil because we, we like to drive our cars and we like to, to stay uh, warm uh, in the winter, uh, but we just want the, the, the Russians or the Norwegians or the British or the Middle Easterns to, to drill their, their countries for yeah, us. Yeah, that seems to be an ongoing thing is that uh, there's all these environmental standards that are put on places, but we're still importing all the energy from the dirty places. Uh, there's a big argument as well that's happening in Canada about the energy there, because there you obviously have the oil sands uh, that are in the western part of the country. And, you know, the eastern provinces say, oh, it's all dirty energy. We don't want to be a part of this. So instead, all they can really do is import oil from Saudi Arabia and some Middle Eastern countries. Yeah. Uh, so in a way, you know, whatever argument you're losing about the environment, then you have this question of actual human rights atrocities and what we're actually complicit in. Is that the same in, in Italy as well? Do you have those arguments? Well, uh... I, I think so. And I think it's both a, an hypocritical and, and inefficient and also ineffective way of dealing with environmental issues and climate change in particular. Um, I, I am a, a big supporter of carbon taxation or car carbon pricing. There are many ways of, of attaching a price to, to carbon emissions in order to, to uh, uh, disincentivize the use of dirty fuels. 
but that's it. I mean, that, 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 that is what economists know that, that can deliver uh, what, what you want, that is a decarbonization uh, without imposing uh, unnecessary costs uh, to, to the economy and to the environment as well. Uh, instead, we are we have this policy of uh, on 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 one hand, you know, uh, doing the bad stuff we don't want, uh, ju just move it uh, where you cannot see that, and th that becomes fine. And on the other hand, we are picking winners like with uh, granting subsidies to solar power or wind power or nuclear power in some countries. Uh, with, with basically no relationship whatsoever to the expected benefit. So we, I, I think from this point of view, we have to, to, to improve our political approach. So Carlo, you are a, an economist, a researcher. Uh, you look at many of these topics you know, throughout the continent and throughout the world. What are some of the areas that you're actually most hopeful about when it comes to uh, increasing economic growth or prosperity for consumers? Uh, what are the kind of fields that you identify as saying, hey, there's actually a lot to be very optimistic about here? Well, I think that what makes uh, myself and, and ourselves to some extent optimistic is technological progress. I mean, technology is delivering to us things that were unthinkable just a few years ago. And, and technology uh, provides us with the means of, of achieving our personal welfare and our utility as economists uh, say, while reducing our uh, undesirable impacts on, on, on the planet or, or on, on other uh, um, people. Uh, so I, I think what we should, I mean, if I had one single uh, uh, policy advice to give to any government, I would say do whatever you can do to improve as much as possible the propensity of businesses and people to invest in innovation, to explore uh, new technologies. And, and many of them will fail, of course, because any, you know, I mean, most innovations are actually bound to failure. But once you find one which is, which is valuable, then the entire humanity takes uh, enormous uh, steps forward. So, so I, I, I think that is the point. And, and you achieve innovation by uh, uh, creating financial rewards, for example, by uh, introducing uh, research and development tax credits, like, like many countries have, but even more important by eliminating unnecessary and costly regulation and by abandoning the hypocritical uh, uh, bans and, and uh, uh, barriers that, that prevent people from exploring new technologies. Nuclear power, we, we discussed about it, is a big case in point. It's totally, uh, I mean, inconsistent to claim on the one end that as Europeans, we want to be the, the global leaders in fighting climate change. And at the same time, uh, uh, introducing bans or limits or taxes or whatever on nuclear power, which is at least as an important emissions-free uh, energy source as renewable energy. Well, I, I can't really stop you from giving us that optimistic note, so I'm, I'll have to edit there. But, Carlo, i got to thank you so much for your time. I'll invite, obviously, all the listeners and watchers of the program over to your Twitter page as well. It's just at Carlo Stagnato. We'll link to that in all the descriptions. Uh, thanks so much for taking your time. I hope to have you on again because I know there's a lot of stuff a brewing. Uh, we got great innovations to follow and, and uh, more things to celebrate, right? Thank you very much. Yes, definitely. And, and, and I also hope we will have 
even more changes and chances to, to, to exchange ideas, but also to travel, which is something we have been missing for, for so long. Very true. I, I hope to be in Venice uh, next month. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes if I'm allowed uh, on the plane. <laughs> Good. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Carlo. Uh, two great interviews, Bill Wirtz, um, to start the show this week, uh, followed up by uh, none other than uh, Carlos Stegnaro, um, looking at two countries in Europe for what we will call Europe Week, um, for people who are maybe interested in the, the comings and goings of what is currently going on in Europe, some of the lessons that maybe we can learn here in North America uh, on some pretty big issues, uh, I mean, I think of rail as a as a big one. I mean, lots of lots of talk in the United States about um, Amtrak, and then the same goes for Via in Canada. Um, not necessarily the most enjoyable experience for folks if they're traveling long distances. Um, so a lot of lessons to be learned there uh, in regards to travel. Uh, there, are, there is some shady stuff going on at Toronto City Hall, and we've talked about this before, but I wanted to revisit it just because it's so irritating, because if you're like me, you probably use ride-sharing services, Uber, Lyft. Um, if you're listening to the podcast version and you're from outside North America, there are there's a long list of, of ride-sharing options available to you, but... Um, the city of Toronto is essentially looking to stop all new licenses for ride-sharing drivers. Um, and this is a huge, huge problem for people who use ride-sharing services in Toronto. I mean, it's a huge city. There are probably hundreds of thousands of people who use these services every day. And the whole industry exists on availability. The reason why ride-sharing has been successful is that it's faster, safer, cheaper, more secure than some of the legacy options that exist out there. And so we have Councillor Kristen Wang Tom, uh, or Tam Wong pushing this motion again, and she's going to be pushing for it again next week to stop all new licenses. And I don't think a lot of people really know just how bad that would be for consumers in the city. And so if you limit prices, or sorry, if you limit the availability, right? So you're capping Uber drivers. And remember that most Uber drivers are people who do it part-time. They do it either as casual work or after whatever their nine to five is. It gives them a little extra money in their pocket. They're using dead capital, um, which is a blunt term to describe things that you own, that often sit around and don't get used very much. Um, I would assume most of you are like me. Your vehicles didn't get a lot of use in the pandemic, and so people are saying, well, I could use it to make make a couple extra bucks here and there um, and help people get to and from wherever they need to go in the city. And so if, if the counselor is actually successful in limiting um, the availability of ride-sharing, what you're going to see happen is you're going to see prices go up because Uber's pricing model is built on uh, the availability of drivers. And so if there are fewer drivers, the, the compensation for them has to go up in terms of trying to keep them on the road so that they can have consistent service. And that's totally fine. 
But what you're going to have is you're going to have a lot of people who will be looking to use ride-sharing services who just won't have availability for them. And I think this is a huge disservice to consumers in this city. And I, I would say more importantly, I, this just reeks, reeks of, of cronyism. Reeks of cronyism in the sense that who benefits from limiting ride-sharing? The taxis do. They benefit if prices artificially go up because the city is restricting ride-sharing access. And I don't have anything against taxis. I totally support their right to be in the market. I actually think that the rules for taxis should be relaxed because they had to jump through way too many hoops uh, in regards to fees and all of that nonsense from the city for years. Um, but really, this this type of policy feels like something that is just nakedly protecting the legacy industry. And the problem is, is that we see this all the time. We see this all the time when new innovative products, services, and platforms come along. The legacy industry will successfully lobby for a ton of just insane regulations uh, to try and keep their market share. And we saw this in Toronto where uh, Airbnb came into the city. If you were traveling into Toronto, you you had more unique options in terms of places to stay. Um, you had different areas in regards to places you can stay. I mean, if I think um, where the hotels are, they're pretty centrally located in Toronto, but you would have the ability to stay elsewhere, whether that be a little fancy or in Yorkville or in Parkdale, High Park area. So it offered tourists the ability to experience the city in different ways, democratize profits a little bit um, away from some of these major hotel chains who have kind of really dominated the the tourism section sector for so long. And what's ironic is that the same group, literally the same group, just under a different banner, uh, who lobbied the government, the city council, um, to restrict Airbnb quite heavily, are the same group who are lobbying to restrict ride sharing. And this is something that I've I've written about uh, extensively before. I've debated uh, folks from this uh, organization. And really, it just feels like these people hate fun. Um, and if you want to read up on some of that, um, if you go to the Financial Post, you, you search ride fare shows nothing is new under the rent-seeking sun. Uh, you'll see my thoughts on this, where I kind of walk through the the extent to which um, the anti-fun lobby, the anti-innovation lobby, is really just pushing to make your choices more restricted. Um, and that's really what, I mean, interestingly, that's how Yael uh, and I and this organization ended up um, coming together. The Consumer Choice Center was founded on... Uh, an original defense years ago of of ride sharing saying hey this is new consumers like it let's not over regulate it let's not ban it um, but yet years on given that even though millions of people use these services every day there are vested interests kind of actively pushing uh, against your ability to choose something other than a taxi uh, and they propose all sorts of insane solutions. I mean, one of them was a whole bunch of extra taxes 
uh, on ride sharing and sending that money to the TTC. Um, I mean, that just seems that, I mean, one, that's so blatantly crony. Uh, but two, I think the TTC should just probably focus on providing a better service. Um, so that's my, uh, my rant to conclude, uh, this week's show. Um, it does look like for next week's show, we are going to have, uh, South Car- former South Carolina governor, Mark Sanford back on the program. So if you like chatting about Republican politics, uh, he's certainly a brain trust in that regard. Feel free to tweet Yael and I about your suggestions for the show. Uh, we appreciate you, whether you're joining us live or you're joining us uh, on the podcast version of the show. And uh, until next week, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Destroy through COVID 19. No more! No more!